Lord, this morning we invite you into this space. God, that you would speak to us in a way only a father really knows how. God, I pray that today would be a time when we can lean in closer to you. Jesus, our lives are filled with so much stuff. So many things to do, so many people to see, so many conversations to have, and also to avoid. Lord, but in this space, we are not avoiding a conversation with you. Lord, we want to hear your voice. God, we want to read and learn your truth. Jesus, would you allow us, would you help us to do that today? God, we pray specifically for Karen Odom this morning. God, for healing of her back. Lord, we pray that she would find uh, relief and restoration. Jesus, we, we ask that believing that you are the ultimate healer. Jesus, that you're the greatest physician. God, and the, the truth is, is that you want to heal us. Lord, you want to show up in those moments. Lord, we pray, God, and we celebrate with Jean Hunt today as she celebrates her first heavenly birthday. God, I pray that the cake is great. <laughs> Lord, that the celebration is joyous because it's with you. Jesus, and on this side of heaven, we pray for her family and for her friends. Lord, it doesn't feel as joyous today. God, but we rejoice in the salvation and in the hope of eternity. Jesus, for every other prayer request represented in this space, Lord, God, I'm sure they outnumber the people in, in this room. Lord, we lay your, our burdens at your feet, knowing that you are capable and willing to carry them. Holy Spirit, we invite you in and we ask for you to move, knowing that that requires for us to listen. Jesus, would you be about anchor today? It's in your precious and holy name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. Um, we are starting a new sermon series this week, which I'm pretty stoked about. Uh, <laughs> been waiting. <laughs> but um, uh, also, uh, my introduction today is to ask you this one very simple question, and that is, have you ever walked in on somebody watching a television show or a movie before? We all have, right? Um, have you ever walked in like 30 minutes before the end of the movie? Uh-huh. Okay. Listen, what do you do in that moment? See, what you do in that moment for the person that's sitting on the couch enjoying that movie shows a lot about you, I think. Um, my mom was notorious. She would come in when the plot twist had twisted, you know? She would come in when the music was loud, when my heart was pumping, you know, when I'm sitting on the edge of my chair and I'm wondering what's going to happen and I'm all soaked in and she would do two things. One, she would make so much noise, right? Like she had swish pants, 
You know what I'm talking about? Swish pants. Swish, swish, swish over to the couch. Swish, swish, swish over to the kitchen. Swish, swish, swish. She'd get the loudest chips in the kitchen and eat them in the living room. Uh, she would move chairs around the works as if it were her job. And then, second, she would ask me all sorts of questions. Oh, like, hmm, what's happening right now? Who's that girl? Is he going to kiss her? Does he love him? Does he love her? Like, uh, uh, is this, wait, did he just say that he's Luke's father? What? Like, oh, why are they on a train heading for death? You know, like, why is this happening? And, oh, is this a good movie? I've been thinking about watching it myself. And it was maddening, right? Because I'm like, man, if you were just here since the beginning, all your answers, and nothing quite ruins the end of a movie or the end of a story, like trying to catch somebody up in the most powerful moments. And I will tell you that we do this with Jesus. We do this with Jesus' story, where we go through Christmas and Jesus is a baby. And then we experience this time warp. And all of a sudden, Jesus is a full-grown man on a cross dying for my sins. And in those moments when Easter approaches, we're asking all sorts of questions. And we're wanting all of the details. And I want to ask the question, what if we just sat down and saw the whole story? From the moment he he stepped on the pages of history as an adult near the Jordan Basin. What would happen if we saw his entire adult life? How would Easter be different? And so we're starting one of the longest sermon series I've ever preached is the longest sermon series I've ever preached, and it's called I Am. And it's the story of Jesus from the moment he steps on the scene at the Jordan River Basin to when we find his tomb completely empty. So I like to pray at the beginning of each sermon series just to prepare our hearts. And let me tell you, we're preparing our hearts for three months. So this one's got to count. <laughs> so would you pray with me? Lord, we, we surrender this series to you. God, it is February, and we're already looking forward to Easter. Jesus, but we know that before we get there, there are sermons to be preached. There are stories to be told. There's tables to be flipped. There's things that you have done. God, that we want to we know the whole story from beginning to what seemed like the end. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to lean into your story in a new way, God, and that it would apply in the depths of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So every, every headliner needs a good opening act, right? Uh, I went to see Katy Perry in concert once, and she had an opening act. I couldn't tell you her name. Uh, but she had an opening act. <laughs> you know, somebody that comes out and kind of like warms up the crowd, right? Gets them ready. And, and Jesus had an opening act. Uh, straight from the basin of the Jordan River, smelling like locusts and wearing animal skin, I give you John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist comes on to the scene. <laughs> And he is Jesus' opening act. Now, uh, John the Baptist, you've heard him called John the Baptist, and that's not because he wasn't John the Presbyterian or John the Wesleyan or even John the Lutheran. Uh, But the reason he's called John the Baptist is because John is the first person 
in all of history to manhandle somebody and literally baptize them. Now, in Jewish history, there was a baptism. And it happened in a ceremony where a Gentile, somebody who wasn't Jewish, decided to become a Jew. And when he decided to become a Jew, there was all sorts of pomp and circumstances around it. You know, there were interview questions, and there were conversations, and there were ceremonies, and all of this culminated to this moment where you had a ceremonial washing. Now, oftentimes this was done in private, but most of the time you had at least one or two people there to witness it, and you would die to your non-Jewish self, and you would come alive as a Jew. Nobody would touch you during that part. That would seem ceremonially weird. But John comes on the scene, and he baptizes people. For the first time in this whole story, baptism is a part of a community. And he gets this name that literally translates to John the Baptizer. Man, like, if you had a name like that, Reverend Lindsay sounds pretty lame compared to that, you know? Lindsay the Baptizer, you know? And he steps on the scene, and he decides that he is going to be Jesus' headliner because he is brought into this world in a very unique way that we talked about during Christmas. And that's his job. Now, we're going to be in all four accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, throughout all of this time, but we're going to start in Luke today. And the reason we're starting there is because this is the very first mention of John the baptizer. So in Luke 3, starting in verse 1, it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, this is the part when you're reading scripture, you're like, okay, okay, okay. Like, just get to the good part. Like, I don't really care about this part. But this part's actually pretty significant. Because what Luke is doing here, Luke was a physician by trade. And so when you read his, his words, when you read Luke, there's incredible detail. And what Luke is doing here is he's writing to future skeptics. Yeah, he, he's writing to future skeptics. And he's saying, go ahead, fact check me. Go ahead, you want to know when this happened, go ahead and try me. Google it. You know, have you ever been in a disagreement with somebody and you're like, go ahead, Google it. I know it's true. And that's what Luke is doing here. He's setting it up and he says, you want to know when this happened. Here is the Roman Empire. Here is the governor of Judea and Galilee. Here's the sub-governors of the province. And here's the high priests that are in place. Do I have your attention now? He said, this is when it happens. Historians that will come later and don't even believe in Jesus, they will commend him for his details. They will commend him for his historical accuracy. And look what happens next. It says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And Matthew continues on. Matthew 3, verse 5. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea 
and the whole region of the Jordan. Now, this is not some crazy zealot saying that some people went out there. This is saying all people went out to see John the Baptist. All these thousands upon thousands of Jews flocked out to the wilderness to hear some smelly guy in a river. And he walks out there, and this is a problem. This is a problem, right? Because every once in a while in history, some Jewish punk would rise up, and he would say that he is the Messiah. And this was an issue in, the history, in that part of history, because they were under Roman authority. And so whenever these messiahs would rise up, they would call their people to action, and a lot of time it had to do with Roman taxes. And when the Jews got out of control, the Roman government would come in and they would say, if you can't control your people, we will. And when they said that, it meant bloodshed. And so when the high priests and the authorities hear that thousands of people are walking out into the desert to meet this man... This is trouble. This is, oh no, it's happening again. And I can't see that happen again. And it wasn't just his teaching that was a problem. Uh, Verse 6, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, you and I, we read this in our English Bibles in 2020, and it doesn't seem that confusing, right? They confessed their sins and they were baptized. But at that time, it would have been radical. To confess your sins during that time, it was a sophisticated system where you would find certain authority to confess your sins to, where there was a process to go through, where you would find an authority figure and they would tell you the loops that you would have to jump through in order to be made right with God. This guy's not even in the temple, and he's receiving confession. And then it says that he was baptizing them. If you were Jewish authority, you'd say, why? They're already Jews. What's the point? Why is this happening? To say that this is radical would be an understatement. Now I want to turn to the book of John. Now John is interesting because he is not John the Baptist, but John, a disciple of Christ. And he gives us an eyewitness account of what happened. But it's years after the fact. So picture like an old man sitting in his study, recording all of the things that he experienced when Jesus was alive. And this is what he said. He says, he said, I am not, oh, sorry. Um, I lost my spot there. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, an old man recall it. And so John 1, verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So what happens here is that the high priests, Caiaphas and Annas, uh, they see that this is happening, and they're like, Yeah, I don't want to go all the way out there. It's a day's trip away from Jerusalem. I'm not going to do it. So they send out some other priests. They essentially look at each other and think, this is, like, we're too important for this task. (laughs) Let's send some other guys out there. 
And so they send some lesser important priests out to see John the Baptist and to see what's going on. And they say, okay, look, make an appointment with this guy, talk to him, ask him what his deal is, and then we'll go from there. And then come back and you tell us what he said. Verse 20, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And we get this picture that John is standing in the river, he's preaching, he's receiving confession, he's baptizing, and he sees these priests come his way with their tassels, with their authority, with their outfits, with their garments, with the way they smell, with the way they look, the way the crowds are parting. And before they can even make their way close enough to Jesus, or to John the Baptist, he's like, I already know what they're going to ask. I'm going to beat them to the punch. And he says, I know what you're going to ask. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Savior. Don't worry. And then it continues on, and it says, And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And this is kind of peculiar, because Elijah is like half a century old at this point. You know, he's not alive anymore. His glory days have ended. But the reason they say this is because in Malachi, the last chapter, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi prophesies that the next time that God's going to do something big, the spirit of Elijah will come back. And some people and some Jews even believe that it would be a reincarnated Elijah himself. And so they say, you're not the Christ, so are you Elijah? It continues on. It says, he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who have sent us. What do you say about yourself? Essentially, like, who do you say you are then? And I like that they say, you know, we need to give an answer to the people that sent us. Like, listen, John the Baptist, I just got a boss I got to report to. You know how it is. You know, got to go up back up on top of that hill. I got to give him an answer. You just got to give me an answer, dude. Like, and they're like, just, just tell me these things. And they say, what are you saying about yourself? Like, come on. Like, level with me here, Johnny. Like, this is awkward. You're, you're hearing confession. That stuff's done on the top of the hill at the temple. That's weird. You're baptizing people. That's, that's abnormal. What are you saying to them that brings them all the way out here? <laughs> this is what he says. He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In other words, get ready. I'm just the warm-up act. Get ready. I'm just the one preparing the way for he who is coming. And the people who already recognize him, who already sense something, they're being baptized, so they are ready. The subtext to his statement is that something greater than that temple on the hill is coming. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? 
Have you ever asked somebody, have you ever gotten like really mad and said, where do you get off, right? That's what they say. They're like, where do you get off baptizing people? You have no authority. There was no ceremony. There was no somebody backing you up. There's nothing. You're not a prophet. You're not Elijah. You're not the Messiah. Where do you get off doing this? He says this, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And John does what John does, and he skirts the question completely. And he says, there's somebody around you that you don't recognize. You think I'm a big deal? He says, you think I'm a big deal? I got your boss's attention. I got Pilate's attention. You guys came out here into the wilderness. You think I'm a big deal? The guy who's coming next, I can't even touch his shoelaces. Well, that's not much of an answer now, is it? (laughs) And so the priests have to go back, and they have to report to Caiaphas and Annas who this guy is, or rather, who he's not, you know? <laughs> they don't really have much to give them. And so he go, they go back and they say to Caiaphas and to Annas, like, this is what he said he's not. Um, I don't know what he is, but this is what he said he's not. And I'm sure Caiaphas and Annas, they look at each other and they groan and they sigh and they think, if you want to get something done right, you got to do it yourself, <laughs> And now I'm going to have to go take a day's trip out to the Jordan River Basin to go see this random guy in the wilderness. And so this is a really bad decision. Like, just a side note, this is a really bad decision on their part. Because what more can you do to give somebody press and to validate their movement than have the high priests of Israel go out into the wilderness? These people don't even leave Jerusalem but they're going to do it. So they get all packed up, and this isn't just a couple of guys and a donkey, you know. These are the high priests. This is a caravan. This is an entourage. This is camels and tents and food and servants and clean people out in the middle of the desert. And they get all ready. They have to wake up in the early morning so that they can get ready and head out. All to see this John the baptizer And so they make their way out into the wilderness. And I imagine what happens is that John looks up on the the hillside and he sees this caravan snaking down the hillside coming towards his baptism service. All the pomp, all the circumstance, people are stirring. The crowds are parting. Some folks fall to their knees in reverence. All of this hustle and bustle happening, breaking up his baptism service. And imagine that moment as some of the cleanest people, physically and spiritually, in the world, had their hair all slicked back, had their garments, had their oils, had their fragrances, had their servants, as some of the cleanest people in all the world, make it down to John the Baptist. Overgrown beard, locust breath, animal skin, clothes, standing in a river. Look what happens. Matthew 3, verse 7. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, now just pause here for a second. Pharisees and Sadducees, they don't even get along. And we'll talk about them later in this series, but they don't even get along, but they have rallied together because that's how annoying John is. Okay, they don't even agree. And so and before they make their way, they say, it says, coming down to his baptism, he said to them, and he says this to them before they can make it close enough to have a private conversation. You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And a hush, no doubt, falls over the crowd, right? (laughs) Nobody talks to these guys like that. Their full-time job is to be good, you know? Like, if God's going to do something, these guys are the ones that should know about it. And he looks at them knee-deep in water, in baptismal river, and goes, you brood of vipers. To put it in, like, our context, you group of snakes. And these people, these guys, they are culturally law keepers. And he says, you are law breakers. He says, I know what's inside of you. And he continues on with the best burn ever. Can we go back to that verse? I want, to sh- I want you to see it in the text when I read it. He says, uh, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, what it looks like is that people are coming to get baptized. And so are these, is this group of vipers. And he thinks, how dare you come and think you're going to get baptized? And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, that's like five or six words. That is a sick burn, let me tell you. Like, this is when you say, like, you need some ice for that burn? Like, this is bad. Because he says to them, he says, bear fruit of repentance. He says, don't tell me you did some secret magic prayer in the privacy of your own temple. Don't tell me you sacrificed whatever. Show me with your life. Bear fruit that you have changed. Yikes! Yikes! And he says this in front of all of these Jews. All of these people watching. You brood of vipers. And this, this is the grit that Jesus starts his ministry from. This is the raw, countercultural, awkward, gritty story where Jesus starts ministering. John the Baptist was giving everybody a heads up. He was giving everybody a heads up that the days of compassionless, loophole religion were coming to an end. The days when you could hide behind your walls, hide behind your money and your secrecy and your temple are over where you could get away with not taking care of other, other people, John warns, all of those things are coming to a screeching halt. Prepare for the wrath of God, oh, you religious people. And that moment happens, and that's, I mean, convenient, probably because it was a little awkward. Surprisingly enough, that was a very short conversation. <laughs> you know, where do you go from there, you know? 
You start with brood of vipers, I'm not sure how to top that, okay? Because they're holy people, right? So, so they leave and they go back. And then the next day, the moment the entire world has been waiting for happens. John 1, 28. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. No camels, no caravans, no entourage, no pomp and circumstance, nothing. Just Jesus making his way down the hillside. And I want to pause here for this moment because this moment is so fragile. Because at this point in time, Jesus knows who Jesus is and John knows who Jesus is. And he walks down the hillside and Jesus sees John and John sees Jesus. And this is the moment, this is the encounter that changed everything. Because from this point on, the tube of toothpaste, it has been squeezed. And you cannot get that stuff back in there. The box had been opened. This is the moment when we are going to introduce Jesus as Savior and Messiah of the world. There's no turning back after this moment. And I, it blows my mind that the God of the universe was like two guys in a desert. Yeah, it'll work. So fragile. And he sees Jesus, and this is what he says. Look. Not believe, not pretend, not check your brain at the door, not turn your eyes over. You might not like what you see. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. And if you're a Jew in that crowd, you would be confused. You would be confused. You're like, Guys, we're already radical. We're out here in the wilderness getting baptized. You're telling us all sorts of things. You were really rude to those guys yesterday. Like, and now you're saying that this man is the Lamb of God, like how Abraham brought a lamb for sacrifice. You're saying that he is going to take away the sins. The Greek here is so beautiful. To take away sins is to literally lift off and take away. But this isn't even where it gets dicey. He says... Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's when all the Jews say, hold up a minute. <laughs> hold up one second. You even mean not Jewish sin? Does that mean that you take the sin away from Roman sin? That means that, that you want to help the whole world? Up until this point, the Jewish system, it was all about keeping things separate. It was all about being outside of other, of, other, um, of other people. You either were a Jew or you were wrong. They said, you know, we don't eat their food. We don't marry their daughters. They don't come into our homes. We don't go into theirs. They don't they can't enter into the, the biggest places of the temple. It is us versus them. Our whole history is marked by oppression from outsiders. 
We are waiting for a Messiah like Joshua who's going to get rid of the enemy. And you're going to come here and say that this man will take the sin of the whole world. You're saying that instead of God being against the world, he is for it? How confusing would that be? And yet this is the tension that Jesus steps into. No caravan, no entourage, completely vulnerable steps into. And if you're taking notes, which I hope you would, I would write this down. Jesus was the bridge between the Old and New Covenant. Jesus was the bridge between the Old and New Covenant. He was the bridge between two sets of laws, between two different worldviews that God promised long before Abraham that he would be a nation and the entire world would be blessed because of it. Jesus was the bridge. He, was, he brought the fact that Israel was not the end, but simply a cocoon from which life would come forth from. And John the Baptist came to warn people that the end was near, that that thing that we have been prophesying and praying for, that big thing God's going to do, it's going to happen. But Jesus wasn't just a bridge. Also write this down. It says, Jesus was born under the old covenant to introduce the new covenant. He was born in one covenant to introduce another. He was born under the old covenant of Moses so that he could introduce and initiate a new one. But change is difficult. Moving, Lord have mercy. Change is difficult, whether it is in the Bible or it is in your life. And this is what we find at the beginning of the story that will carry us through to the end. And that's this. Those who profit most from the status quo are the least inclined to let it go. Let me say that again. Those who profit most from the status quo are least inclined to let it go. When Amazon introduced two -day, prime two-day shipping, okay, the mom and pop stores, they didn't really care about that. You know who did? Walmart, Target. How are we going to compare to that? because they had the most to lose. And what we find is that the temple system, it was very powerful and it was very wealthy. And they had a lot to lose if Jesus was right. And so those folks, that same system, they will end up joining up with the kingdom of the world and they will crucify him. And Jesus will have no, no good thing to say about the temple system, about the old covenant. And the people that stood to lose the most struggled the most. That happens in our lives. When we feel like giving up something that we hold in place of where only Jesus should be, when we give that so much value, it's very difficult to let it go. So I'm going to end on these last three things. These are the three things that Jesus came to introduce. The first thing he came to introduce was a new covenant. So often, pastors, we get up here and we try to 
shave off the rough edges of the Old Testament and shave off the, the rough edges of the New Testament, kind of put it together and make it make sense. But Jesus came not to add to the law. He came to fulfill it and then put a fork in it, put a bow on top of it, and in part, a new covenant. Second thing, he came with a new command. Up until now, Moses is the lawmaker. Up until now, that is the only time that laws were given to the Israelites. And you will hear through the course of this series, Jesus say, you have heard it said. And when we hear that, they're saying, you've heard Moses say. And oftentimes, the Jewish priests and those authorities, they will say, who are you to go up against Moses? And we will watch as Jesus takes 600 commandments of the Old Testament and condenses them down to two. And then in his final act, he reduces it to one. A single commandment that will serve as the unifying ethic for his last thing that he introduced. And that's a new movement. You and I the church, the body of believers. And so John, he stands in the Jordan River and Jesus makes his way down to John. And Jesus tells John, you got to baptize me. And imagine John's surprise when he says, I just told them I can't touch your shoes. <laughs> How do you expect me to baptize you? I'm not worthy. And Jesus says, you must. You have to. Because baptizing him there sets him up to redeem the sins of all mankind. But before we get there, there are sermons to preach, like I said. There are miracles to perform. There's tables to flip. There's people to meet. There's conversations to have. There's details to zoom in on. And all of this was done Listen, I was writing this sermon and I thought, man, I don't have this thing to end on to say, think about this question for the rest of the week or, or meditate on this point in your life. But, but listen, all of this was done just so that you would have certainty that, God, that Jesus' work was complete and that God loved you so much. That God loved you so much that the greatest plot twist that life has ever experienced, he did. That, that God crossed every single barrier and, and every single bully, you know? That he took on a system that was broken just so that he could have a relationship with you. And it started in this moment. It started with a guy in a river and a Messiah that did not look and did not fit the part. Would you pray with me? God, we are in awe of who you are. Lord, I'm in awe of the fact that you love us so much that all of this was worth all of us 
God, so often, Lord, I don't feel worthy of that kind of love. But you did not just say that you loved me. Lord, you showed it. Jesus, through centuries, you showed it. God, I pray that this morning would be a reminder of that. Lord, that we could let go of the things that keep us from embracing your love. Lord, that we wouldn't get in the way of that. I've asked the worship team to sing How He Loves this morning. If you'd stand and worship that love with me.